That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. But whether you can hear that sound or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from only one mile away. So I know what happens when the so-called experts get it wrong. Food, glorious food, we need it every day. And between Fukushima, atmospheric nuclear bomb tests, domestic radiation releases from our neighborhood leaking nuclear power plants, and a comatose FDA and EPA, our food supply is being compromised by the nuclear industry's trash. What's a citizen to do? Today's interview is with two experts on this issue. Cindy Folkers of Beyond Nuclear and Mary Beth Brangan of EON, Ecological Options Network. Both of these powerhouse women are representing the coalition group FAN, Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network. Listen in as we talk about food safety, how the nuclear industry is, no surprise, gaming the numbers, the media, and communications lines, and how you can not only sign two petitions forcing the food safety issue on the FDA and the rest of the government, but get involved in the movement to get rid of nuclear. It's a good thing. That interview will be coming up in just a few minutes. Today is Tuesday, April 9, 2013, and here is today's nuclear news. Oh, so much. It's been such a week. Let's start with an overview, courtesy the former chair of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Gregory Yasko. Yasko is calling for a phase out in the U.S. of nuclear plants, saying that they aren't safe. Well, duh. Former Nuclear Regulatory Commission Chairman Gregory Yasko says that the current fleet of operating plants in the U.S. should be phased out because regulators can't guarantee against an accident causing widespread land contamination. In two key decisions last week, Yasko said the agency, quote, damaged significantly, end quote, its international reputation for upholding safety. I wonder where they got that reputation. And he accused the five commissioners of, quote, just rolling the dice, end quote, in dealing with severe accidents. The two things that he referred to were the votes last week by commissioners to delay by at least four years a decision on whether to require filtered vents on older boiling water reactors. These are vents that would prevent the spread of radiation should there be an accident. In a second vote, they ruled out any options that would take full account of the cost of lengthy evaluations in weighing measures to prevent a major radiological release. And they have repeatedly stressed that their duty is to provide, quote, adequate protection. And they have repeatedly stressed that their duty to provide, quote, adequate protection, end quote, to the public is not the same as, quote, zero risk, end quote. I just love when the NRC sets us all up to be collateral damage. In alignment with that story, have to share the Numbnuts of the Week Award for nuclear boneheadedness. The White House has endorsed a plan to relax long-held standards for cleaning up radioactive material released by a nuclear power plant disaster or an act of terrorism. This according to a group of federal officials in a new draft report. This report suggests guidelines under which as many as 1 in 23 people would be expected to develop cancer from long-term radiation exposure. Mmm, yum. 
This is in addition to the 41% of us already expected to develop cancer sometime in our lives. That document is now pending review at the White House Management and Budget Office. The report stated that, according to guidelines established by the EPA Superfund program during the 1980s, cleanups are usually designed so that no more than 1 in 10,000 people would be expected to develop cancer in a worst-case scenario involving long-term exposure to radioactive contaminants. However, at a March 12 symposium hosted by the Defense Strategies Institute, in a remarkable show of compassion and humanity, Paul Kudarakis of the EPA Consequence Management Advisory Team. Listen to that again. The Environmental Protection Agency Consequence Management Advisory Team. In other words, they're spin advisors. This guy said events like Fukushima would cause a, quote, fundamental shift in cleanup, end quote. U.S. residents are used to having cleanup to perfection, according to Mr. Kudarakis but will have to abandon their not-in-my-backyard mentality in such cases. Kudarakis then said, People are going to have to put their big-boy pants on and suck it up. Don't you love that official government languaging? Isn't it encouraging and reassuring to know that this is our government protecting us while drawing on our tax dollars? Mm-mm-mm. More numbnutsery, though not the official kind, from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. In an extraordinary admission, Southern California Edison, on April 3rd, said that as part of any experimental plan to restart one of the crippled San Onofre nuclear reactors, the utility expects to have to start and restart it four or five times in the next two years. Now, when you were a kid, Did you ever just switch a light switch up and down and up and down, on and off and on and off just to play with it? And if you did and your mom caught you, did she do what my mom did, which was yell, Would you stop playing with that thing? You're going to break it. Well, Southern California, Edison, you want to play with a nuclear reactor and with our lives in that way? It's already broken, but you're going to break it more. Friends of the Earth said that the proposal is disgraceful. Another example of Edison putting profits before safety and treating legitimate public concerns as well as those of independent nuclear engineers and God about safety with contempt. In an amazing show of hubris, if you don't know what hubris means, it's goyish for chutzpah. But really what it means is arrogance, flat-out arrogance. Edison announced in a meeting at NRC headquarters that it wants the NRC to approve their request to restart the damaged Unit 2 reactor by June 1st, just in time for surf season. Mm -mm -mm. And they want the license to cover two years of operation. If those requests are granted, the NRC could approve the license before any public hearings take place. It sounds like Edison is trying to dictate policy to the NRC which, in fact, is the way the NRC operates. Remember, they get 90% of their funding from the nuclear industry, not from the rest of us. And here's a regular feature of Nuclear Hot Seat. It's the NRC duck! (laughs) Report. Because when it comes to the NRC, the only possible stance a person can take is to duck.
We reported last week about the one million pound piece of equipment that was dropped at the Arkansas One nuclear reactor, killing one person and injuring eight. Here from the official NRC notification of event or unusual circumstances, uh, you think, are a few of the details just to fill in the picture of the level of competence that we're dealing with. This started on March 31st of 2013 at 7.50, 7.50 a.m. Central Daylight Time at the Arkansas Nuclear One Unit One, which was in a refueling outage and lost off-site power. In a show of complete empathy, Unit Two at that facility experienced a reactor trip after a 600-ton generator, meaning a 1,200,000-pound piece of equipment, fell onto the turbine deck and then approximately 30 feet onto the train bay floor. I wonder if it bounced. It did an awful lot of damage, not just to the people, but to the facility itself. Cascading results. At 9.22 a.m., off-site power to Unit 2 was lost because water from a fire main caused a short circuit. This was a fire main that was damaged when the piece of equipment fell. The supply breaker from the startup Transformer 3 failed because of water intrusion stemming from the damaged fire suppression on system piping. Now dig this. Operators cooled down Unit 2 to a hot shutdown. They had to cool it down to get a hot shutdown. The failure of the supply breaker may have been caused by an explosion in the breaker cubicle. Now we're up to an explosion. The event was terminated at 6.21 p.m. This is 11 hours after it started because the affected electrical bus was not energized and there was no other damage. What was left to damage? A core meltdown? You should be happy to know that additional firewater pumps have been positioned to provide firewater if necessary, Kimosabe. And the licensee has established fire watches in the auxiliary buildings of both units. So now they're on the hook for fire. And a final point, the licensee has issued a press release. Well, of course. You know, what makes the U.S. think these nuclear nightmares are a good idea under any circumstance, especially with the idiots they have running them? In Iowa, there has been a proactive NIMBY strike to prevent new nuclear from taking root. A petition in Iowa is trying to prevent farmland in Muscatine County from becoming a nuclear reactor site. The petition says Mid-America Energy has bought 800 acres of farmland in rural areas with plans to build a nuclear power plant. You can add your voice to this petition by going to change.org. And if we get a direct link, it will be up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com. This is a flat-out bullshit alert. This comes from World Nuclear News, which likes to just twist itself into knots, trying to make nukes sound like a good idea. Ha! Are you ready for this? The pro-nukers are claiming that they have saved 1.84 million lives worldwide because of the use of nuclear power instead of fossil fuels. This is a blatant attempt on their part to co-opt the kind of solid research being done by Joe Mangano that is proving that there have been influences on health and life in the wake of Fukushima because of the plume that hit the United States. They're trying to divert attention away from our statistics by coming up with their trumped-up statistics. Be aware that this statistic is going to be coming up in the news because it'll probably be picked up by 
Fox or faux news, put the news in quotes. And we will have a full-on official debunk of this coming up within the next few weeks. But for now, just know that there are liars, there are damn liars, and there are statisticians who are the worst of all. Internationally, in Iran today, April 9, a magnitude 6.3 earthquake struck near that country's only nuclear power station. The quake killed 32 people and injured 850 as it destroyed homes and devastated two small villages. But the nearby Boucher nuclear plant was undamaged, according to Iranian officials and the Russian company that built it. Of course. As Alice Slater of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation always likes to remind us, every nuclear reactor has a bomb in the basement. There's no such thing as peaceful nuclear power because it all generates weapons-grade plutonium, whether we like it or not. Japan's been having one heck of a week, too. More TEPCO rats have shown up at Fukushima, and there are some furry little rodents, too. Remember the rat that almost ate the future by chewing through the power cord at Fukushima? The one that gave power to all four spent fuel pools and had us in a countdown to Armageddon a couple of weeks ago? Well, workers at that facility were installing wire nets last Friday to keep rats away from a vital cooling system, and instead they tripped up that system, causing it to fail for the second time in three weeks. Wah, 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 wah. The spent fuel pool at the site's number three reactor went without fresh cooling water for almost three hours on Friday afternoon, according to TEPCO, the plant's operator. Cooling was restored by late evening on Friday, between afternoon and late evening. That seems like more than three hours, but anyway, according to the release that went out, there was no imminent danger to the 566 nuclear fuel rods stored in that pool. They're using imminent instead of immediate because we've already called their bullshit on that one. A blackout disabled cooling at four fuel pools last month, an event the company traced to a rat that might have gnawed on power cables and caused a short circuit. TEPCO has since installed mouse traps. As anyone who lives anywhere in a rural area can tell you, mouse traps will not kill rats. Oh, and TEPCO also promised to plug holes through which rats and other rodents might enter buildings. They can squeeze themselves down to the size of a dime if they have to. And have you taken a look at Fukushima lately? The holes there are a whole bunch larger. More from TEPCO, which is not be having a good week of it. On April 6th, about 120 tons of contaminated water leaked from underground storage tanks at the Fukushima Number 1 nuclear plant and may have mixed with underground water. TEPCO estimated that the water contained about 710 billion becquerels of radioactivity and leaked through the joints of protective sheets of the storage tanks. They said that the tank is covered by three layers of waterproof sheets. According to Mochizuki, who writes Fukushima Diary and is in direct connection with people in Japan and people at Fukushima, as of January, 96% of the contaminated water storage facility was full. TEPCO made four holes underground and has been using them for the emergency water storage. The underground storage tank is 60 meters long, 53 meters wide, and 6 meters deep and is lined with a layer of clay and topped with two layers of polyethylene sheets, each 1.5 millimeters thick. Just so you have a means of comparison, 
Trash bags used to line trash cans are frequently 1.5 millimeters thick. Liners used for koi ponds or commercial lakes are 20 mil thick. Other koi pond liners that are cited as being suitable for some types of industrial ponds are 40 mil thick. But here we are. It's two or three layers. It's either three mils or 4.5. Doesn't that just make you feel safe? Now, that was the initial leak. As of April 8th, there was another leak at Fukushima. They halted emergency operations on Tuesday to pump thousands of gallons of radioactive water from a leaking underground storage pool after workers discovered that a similar pool to which the water was being transferred was also leaking. At least three of seven underground chambers at the site are now seeping radioactive water, leaving TEPCO with few options on where to store the huge amounts of contaminated runoff. Meanwhile, that runoff is going into the Pacific Ocean and is being carried across the ocean to a west coast of North America beach near you. Here's a very disturbing report out of Japan that we're waiting for confirmation on. Arne Gunderson raised a red flag that he'd seen a translation into English, but he had not seen and had his own people work on the original report. So we're going to put that much of a caveat on it. But the report says that Japan has passed a law that will enable the police and contractors to monitor Internet activity without restriction to cleanse the Internet of any bad Fukushima radiation news. Previously, the government of Japan issued an official order to telecommunications companies and webmasters to censor reports which contradict the state media reports that the Fukushima nuclear radiation disaster is over. Yeah, tell that to the guys up at TEPCO who are dealing with the leaking water now. The government charges that the damage caused by earthquakes and by the nuclear accident are being magnified by irresponsible rumors, and the government must take action for the sake of the public good. The project team has begun to send letters of request to such organizations as telephone companies, Internet providers, cable television stations, and others to demand that they take adequate measures based on the guidelines in response to illegal information. Quote, the measures include erasing any information from Internet sites that the authorities deem harmful to public order and morality. I just can't read any more of this. It's too upsetting. Let's hope Arnie's suspicions are right and this is not a true story. We'll let you know. Okay, so what is some of that information that Japan would really rather not have its people have access to? That's what we're about to talk about. The Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network is kicking into high gear with two new petitions on the food issue along with an ever-increasing profile in the national activist community. Founded and spearheaded by certified diet counselor and nutrition educator, as well as a kick-ass anti-nuclear activist, Kimberly Roberson, FAN is in the front lines of helping us understand the importance of the food issue since Fukushima. The group is a coalition, and here today on Nuclear Hot Seat, we have two of their cornerstone representatives. Cindy Folkers has been with Beyond Nuclear since 2007 and has a long history as a nuclear activist before that. At Beyond Nuclear, she has specialized in ionizing radiation and its impact on health and the environment. Mary Beth Brangan is an award-winning filmmaker and co-director of E.ON, the Ecological Options Network. 
Both of these women have credits so long and impressive that we don't have time to list them all. Just trust that they're experts on the nuclear issue in all of its convolutions, and they've got a lot to share with us today. Mary Beth Brangan and Cindy Folkers, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Let's get started with some basics about the problems that we do face. Why should we be worried about radiation in our food? This is Mary Beth. We live on the West Coast. And when Fukushima occurred, the trade winds brought the radioactive fallout in the, that occurred from the hydrogen explosions uh, in the jet stream all the way over to Alaska, across the Pacific, to Alaska, and down the West Coast, and then swooped back to Hawaii and around the whole North American continent, and eventually it was measured in South America. Berkeley School of Nuclear Engineering actually measured food and water and milk and topsoil here in the San Francisco Bay Area where I live. And there were elevated levels in all of those samples that they took. Uh, And it was being measured and detected in the milk, for instance, until October of 2011. And so we think there is very good reason to believe we still have radiation in, we don't know where, and we don't know how widespread it would be because it's not evenly distributed, but we need to know, and we feel like there is adequate measurements that have been done that show that there was fallout here. Cindy, can you speak to what studies have been done about the actual effects of radiation buildup in food and the health impacts? Sure, and actually um, I do want to address uh, Mary Beth's point, and she makes very good specific points for California, but in general we are not just talking about Fukushima contamination here in the U.S., We are also, in addition, talking about Chernobyl, all the above-ground bomb tests, the atomic bomb tests, which had been going on since the 40s um, in the last century. And we're also talking about routine releases, which have been ongoing since the nuclear power reactors have been operational and are, are still ongoing today. And so when we talk about contamination, we need to put it in the historical context of what's already been released, some of which is still very radioactive, and what is continuing to be released. So some of the concern that you mentioned, Libby, is also very important, and that's that cesium-137 and 134 uh, tend to bioaccumulate. And what I mean by that is that fish tend to concentrate it in themselves. Humans also tend to concentrate it in themselves and other um, animals such as cows do the same thing. And, of course, a lot of humans eat fish and cows. But it's not just the non-vegetarian food sources that we have to worry about. Mushrooms and berries tend to accumulate cesium radionuclides at a greater amount than other kinds of foods, as do tubers like carrots, potatoes, and beets also tend to accumulate more cesium than other kinds of foodstuffs. So one of the reasons that we need to start testing our food is because we need to figure out what the historical deposition of cesium is doing in our environment. 
and we need to figure out what the new cesium deposition might be doing in our environment, what food is contaminated, what food isn't, and how those hot spots, where those hot spots might exist and how the contamination might be moving through our environment. You know, a while ago I had a conversation with a man who was a soil erosion specialist, and he hadn't thought about the nuclear implications of this, but he actually did his Ph.D. dissertation on the fact that cesium could be used as a marker for soil erosion. In other words, if you tested soil and no cesium was there, it was a marker that erosion had happened because he said that the entire planet, because of atmospheric testing, was contaminated with cesium down to about six or eight inches everywhere, including the Arctic and the Antarctic. What are the levels of cesium that are considered to be acceptable? Not that they are acceptable biologically, but that are considered to be acceptable in our food source, and what is the stance of FAN towards this? The Food and Drug Administration of the United States has determined that its direct intervention level or limit, that's what they call it, a DIL, for cesium-134 and or cesium-137 is 1,200 becquerel kilogram. Now that's the U.S., but there are other countries, such as Japan, who has now suffered a triple meltdown and continues to suffer a triple meltdown, who have lowered their intervention limit, their actual limit, to 100 becquerels per kilogram of cesium. That's 12 now, times less than what we accept here in the United States. Indeed it is. So, of course, this raises several questions, especially about imported food uh, that could be imported from Japan and be up to the 1,200 becquerel per kilogram limit. And then the FDA doesn't even necessarily have to test for those because although that is the direct intervention limit, it is not a binding standard. It is rather a recommendation, and that means that the FDA doesn't necessarily have to test or pull any foodstuffs that might exceed that limit. So there's no enforcement aspect of this if the food happens to be above 1,200 becquerels per kilogram? It's up to their discretion. So there might be or there might not be. This is Mary Beth. We also know that after Fukushima happened, then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton went to Japan and reassured them that we would not stop taking their products. And so we know that Japanese fish that was potentially radioactive had been canned and sent to other countries like Vietnam and Cambodia. And there's nothing to say that we wouldn't have had that same thing happen here in the United States. What are other countries doing about their food contamination? One thing that I want to make clear, Canada's limit is 1,000 becquerels per kilogram currently, which is below the U.S., but much higher than other countries. As far as I know, that 1,200 becquerels per kilogram for the U.S. is the highest in the world, if not one of the highest. Europe is 300 becquerels per kilogram of cesium, sometimes 600 becquerels per kilogram. I think it's 600 for adults, 300 for children. Uh, in certain European countries. It can go higher or lower depending, but it is very clear to, to me anyway that the U.S. limit is very, very high compared to other limits, and it isn't binding. One additional thing is that that 100 becquerels per kilogram in Japan that they lowered it to, which is now acceptable for people to eat, cesium contamination at that level before Fukushima happened would have made that material that it contaminated 
worrisome enough to them that they would have put it in a special container and dictated that it needed to be handled in a very special way, almost like nuclear waste. Now, after Fukushima, it's okay that they eat that amount of contamination in their food. And so, in general, I think that this points to a huge problem in our countries, both democracies, like Japan was supposed to have been, and totalitarian systems, like the Soviet Union was when Chernobyl exploded, they will make the standards anything that they want to for the convenience of the nuclear industry, not for the health of the people exposed. And it sounds like it's completely arbitrary where they set it in terms of perceived acceptability or perceived panic on the part of the population as opposed to anything that's based on health. They actually have calculations that allow them to figure out how many deaths, how many excess deaths will be acceptable if such and such a a limit. Well, this is true in, in Europe, and that's true for the United States EPA calculations on what a cleanup would entail. They have set that based on how many deaths they're willing to tolerate. And the tendency is to allow more and more deaths. And that's just death by cancer. While we know that many more illnesses are created by exposures to even low levels of radiation, when you eat it, it's so much more damaging Uh, than just being exposed to it outside of you. I wanted to also bring up that Belarus and uh, the Ukraine in the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, after Chernobyl, they were the ones who got most uh, highly radiated. And first they started out with high levels of permissible levels in the food, and then over the years reduced it, reduced it, and reduced it to the point now where in Belarus some of their levels recommended are the same as what we're asking for and what uh, very similar to what the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War and Food Watch in Germany are recommending. So for the entire European Union to lower their allowable limits because it's absolutely horrifying to think that doing cold calculations of how many deaths you are willing to tolerate is only for the good of the industry. Cindy, what studies have been done about the actual effects of radiation buildup and health impacts? I am going to talk specifically about cesium-137 because that's what we are asking for the testing to be for, and it is also what has shown some very somewhat surprising disease indications in children in uh, post-Chernobyl Belarus. The studies that were done there indicated that children with cesium-137 contamination levels in their systems of just 11 becquerels per kilogram, and a becquerel, remember, is a disintegration per second, so it's a measure of radioactivity. These children at this level would start to suffer certain problems in their system, like heart problems, hypertension, diabetes, angina, etc. And as the, as the body burden of cesium builds to about 50 becquerels per kilogram, we start to see permanent tissue damage, especially in the heart muscle. So 
these are levels in children's bodies that would be considered sort of low by industry, yet we are finding, at least the Bondashevsky studies indicated, that these are levels of concern. And so we need to make sure that as cesium bioaccumulates in our systems, especially the systems of our children, that it doesn't reach a point where it's going to start causing heart damage, for instance. And that's why um, the governments of Belarus and, and the Ukraine did lower their allowable limits of radiation in food over a period of years as they saw the results uh, happening to their population. So we, we want to do that sooner than later here. For this interview, it's not just a matter of going over the negative points. I think we've, we've made that very clear, but also that there is action taking place, coordinated by Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, or FAN, which is a coalition of individuals and groups that both of you are involved with. Why don't you explain to people a bit about what FAN is about, and then we can move into talking about the petition. Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network was formed between a number of groups, of which E.ON and Beyond Nuclear are two. We have uh, a number of individuals also as part of FAN, some of which are American citizens who are married to Japanese citizens who left Japan against their wishes, of course, after the accident, worried about food contamination over in Japan. And then they get here and they find out that our FDA limit is 1,200 becquerels per kilogram, which to them is absolutely horrifying. That's why they immigrated to the U.S. in the first place, was to be able to protect their children from potential radioactive contamination, especially in food. So we have coalesced around the 1,200 becquerel per kilogram recommendation limit by the FDA, and we are asking that they instead do a couple of things. First, lower the allowable limit to 5 becquerels per kilogram of cesium-134 and or 137 and make it binding so that they actually have to do something with food over that contamination limit. What we really want them to do with that food is not put it on the market. So they would pull anything over 5 becquerels per kilogram of cesium. Then the other thing that we're asking to do in our FDA petition is to widespread test the food in this country so that we can get some sort of an idea, not only of what's contaminated, so that people can avoid eating contaminated food if they so desire, but also establish a research database for people who are interested in studying long-term, low-dose contamination of these radionuclides like cesium-134 and 137 in the environment. So to get a handle on how cesium travels, where it bioaccumulates, so that we can keep tabs on where it is in the environment, where there might be hot spots, and where the hot spots might end up. And they do tend to move, and cesium doesn't stay in one place. So it's very important that we track its movement in the environment. And this is very positive because we can take control over what we feed our families, and we can also do positive research so that we have the knowledge that we need to to understand what's going on rather than a complete knowledge void and the patronizing pats on the head telling us everything is fine and the anxiety that comes from not knowing when we don't have to do that. We can know. 
there's really no safe level. There's no amount of man-made radiation, particles and waste that is not risky. So the fact that we're saying five becquerels per kilogram, we're recommending that be a um, limit, is because that's of just about the limit of the technology in terms of how it can be easily measured. We say in our petition that as soon as technology is developed that allows for more sensitive detection, we are hoping to have a limit of zero radiation in the food. It's true that there's already a lot because of the above-ground testing and because of the routine releases from reactors, but that's still, there's got to be places that don't have the density uh, of other places, the radiation. So the difference between the widespread testing that we're asking for for most foodstuffs to pass through, which would be sort of a conveyor belt system, that kind of test can get down to about five becquerels per kilogram. But there is a more detailed test. It's called scintillation counting. And what they have to do with the food there is they have to pulp it or pulverize it or ash it. In other words, destroy it for eating purposes in most cases in order to get below the five becquerels per kilogram. So if there are five becquerels per kilogram of cesium, below five becquerels per kilogram of cesium, they would have to test that using the scintillation counter, which would require destruction of the food. We can do that every once in a while. The idea would be to take a piece of food from this sort of conveyor belt system that's measuring down to five becquerels per kilogram and test it even lower, below five becquerels, using the scintillation counter. But, of course, that's not practical to do with every piece of food in, in, in our food supply because then we'd all be eating applesauce and ash all the time, and I'm sure that that's not appropriate. Speaking of safety, there are radionuclides beyond cesium that have been released by the nuclear industry. Why are we focusing on testing only for cesium? There are several reasons why. The first reason is that cesium gives off a very specific kind of radiation in the form of a gamma. It's got a very specific energy level at which it shoots itself out at, and that's more easily measured and more easily identified than some of the other radioisotopes, which are absolutely of concern, strontium-90, plutonium-239. Those are ones that actually would require scintillation counting to find, and even then they're more difficult. So that's one reason. Again, it's a technological barrier in a way. The other reason is that strontium-90 and plutonium-239 can often be in the, their presence can often be indicated by the presence of cesium. Now, not all the time, but cesium is an indicator isotope, if you will. So, in other words, its presence could actually indicate the presence of strontium-90 or plutonium-239 or other isotopes that would be from the core of a nuclear reactor. But the scintillation counting, the pieces of food that we pull off the assembly line every once in a while to get more thorough testing that will be able to spot some of these other nuclides of concern. And we could get some sort of a picture there. But no, it is not ideal to just go with cesium-134 and 137. But it's a reasonable start to a food monitoring program in this country that is absolutely long overdue. 
Now, do we have to wait for the government to do the monitoring for us, or are there steps that we as individuals can do to protect ourselves? Well, I think that eventually it's going to be necessary for people to have, like they are doing in Japan, um, there are independent laboratories springing up and also grocery stores that provide that service because you can't really always trust the government is going to do it for you. Nor, I think, can you trust the fact that the government is sharing with you the true information. Well, that was the next thing I was going to say. <laughs> so, it, But we, we do want to make this effort, a good faith effort, with the uh, FDA first and see what happens. But hopefully we there, there will become more of a... Um, grassroots effort in the United States and elsewhere to measure food. And I would hope that any grassroots effort that would spring up and something that I would definitely support is one that springs up that has proper training, that has really considered what kind of measuring equipment and that the measuring equipment is in some way consistent among pieces of equipment because it's very important that whatever system gets established be properly conducted and that the instruments are properly calibrated, all this technical stuff, and that the people are properly trained in how, the, how to use the instrumentation, because we don't want to fall into a trap of having an uncoordinated attempt. My God, that sounds like a new business model for somebody to set up. So here's another important point that I don't think most people realize. The organic standards in the U.S. do not take into account the contamination of our foodstuffs with man-made radiation. So the organic standards will not protect you from cesium-134 or 137, strontium-90, plutonium-239, just to name a few. And this should be, I think, also separated in people's minds from the irradiation of food to, quote-unquote, preserve it. Um, that's a different process altogether, and that is supposed to be labeled already, I think. It isn't good for food, but it's not the same kind of radiation we're talking about that would be as a result of radioactive particles falling on the soil and getting taken up in through the roots and becoming part of the plant. So let's get back to the petition. Where is it and what are you hoping to accomplish with this? Where's the pressure point we're going after with putting this petition together and asking for signatures? So there are actually two separate petitions. One of them is an official petition to the Food and Drug Administration, which we've already filed, I believe, as of March 12, 2013. And people can go to the FDA website and comment directly on that petition, and they can get to the link to that petition through the Beyond Nuclear website or through the FAN website, which will be up by the end of this coming week. Or through Nuclear Hot Seat, where once I have the link from you, it will be posted. Or through eon3emfblog.net. <laughs> yes. And that's petition one. The second petition is a more public petition, and people can go on, sign their name, state, that kind of thing. It's on signon.org. The language is very simple. It is in support of the FDA petition, but it is not directly the FDA petition. And it will go to the Food and Drug Administration, President Obama, and whoever your congressional representatives and senators are. 
And that's on signon.org. Again, the link can be gotten from the FAN website up at the end of this week or Beyond Nuclear's website or Ian or Nuclear Hot Seat. And FAN will be F-F-A-N for Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network dot U.S. Beyond Nuclear is www.beyondnuclear.org, O-R-G. And I give nuclear hot seat all the time, so I don't have to bore people with it right now. <laughs> Where can people go to get educated, to learn more information, and hopefully once they have that information, be so outraged that they want to get involved? Well, I would suggest that they start with Kimberly Roberson's amazing book, Silence Deafening. They can go to the website. SilenceDeafening.com. This is a great book. We have interviewed Kimberly a couple of times on the podcast, most recently a couple of weeks ago, about the food issue. And uh, it is a great book for orienting people to what these issues are, why they should be concerned, and some of the things they can do in their own lives to be able to help themselves if not heal, at least not become contaminated. Correct. And I find it's a really very good primer, and it's also got a very positive bend to it, which is really important when you're trying to do this kind of work. If people want a little more detail, they can go to uh, beyondnuclear.org, and we have stories up about the food petition, both food petitions. They can also see my video, which is also on beyondnuclear.org or on Eon's page. And what is this video that you are in, Cindy? This video was from the Helen Caldicott Symposium. Where she made a 15-minute presentation, um, a brilliant presentation about uh, radiation in the food and why we need monitoring. Wonderful. That will also be a link on nuclearhotseat.com. So if you have any final thoughts you would like to leave us with today regarding this issue of our food safety, how important it is, the petition, anything at all, what would that be? I think it's really important for people in the United States to understand that almost every uh, food protection that we have had instituted in this country through whatever agency you can think of at the federal level, it has been a hard-fought battle to get that done. But we have won it, and we can win this as well. But we need to realize that we're going to be in this for the long haul and beyond nuclear and FAN, Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, and all the groups that are associated with it are in this for the long haul, and we need to do this for our children's health and our future. And the grandchildren's grandchildren. Oh, it's so true. All future generations and all creatures depend on us to take this action right now. And we can do it. We can do it together. So it's so important that as many signatures are on that petition to the public as possible. So get that link and then sign it yourself and get it out to your networks and put it onto Facebook and Twitter. And then all of that will go into the FDA so they'll know how many people want their food tested. This has been a phenomenal interview. I want to thank you for all of your efforts, all of your actions, your energy, and for being my guest today, Mary Beth Brangan and Cindy Folkers on Nuclear Hot Seat. The link to the petitions as well as the video of Cindy's terrific presentation on food safety at Dr. Helen Caldicott's Symposium on the Medical and Ecological Consequences of Fukushima will be up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com. Click on the blog page. 
A shout out to Jules at UCY.TV, which as of April 11 will be streaming Nuclear Hot Seat every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, right after Ms. Radchick herself with the nuked news. The start of a nuclear network. New listeners, I want to say hello and welcome. You're invited to join the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page and Facebook group page. You can friend me, Libby Halevi, and get in on the growing international conversation regarding nuclear. The archive for this program, 95 podcasts and counting, are available on iTunes or at nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. you got to click around and scroll down, but you can get to all of them. I want you to know that if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, you can send that information in an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. I'm especially looking for public domain music dealing with the nuclear issue, preferably in humorous ways, but I'll take the serious too. But we need it to fill out the podcast every week as this new platform expands the show to one hour. Woohoo! A few last-minute news notes. Priscilla Starr, who is the founder of the Coalition Against Nukes, is wanting to compile a list and contact information for all the local nuclear organizations in the country and beyond and in other countries as well. If you've got someone there, even if it's one person doing the work, would you please contact the Coalition Against Nukes? You can go to CAN on Facebook and just put something in the status box or you can message Priscilla directly. But we want to create a comprehensive directory of all of us. There's a great list of 10 questions designed to reveal the nuclear industry as the pond scum it really is. Uh, Oh, excuse me. My apologies to pond scum. I am sorry for the negative associations by comparing you to nuclear. Anyway, these questions are by Timothy Mousseau, who's been working on documenting animal and insect mutations in radiation zones and who spoke so powerfully at Dr. Caldecott's symposium. A link to his 10 killer questions for a killer industry will be linked to on the Nuclear Hot Seat website. And speaking of that symposium, we're going to have a link to Cindy Foker's presentation there as well. In fact, I just made the decision. We're going to play as much of that presentation as possible at the end of this podcast just to give you a taste of what's in there. But you want to go to the site so you can see the PowerPoint because some of her pictures are really priceless. And before we go out, I want to give you a film report. Three different items this week regarding film. First, this is really fascinating. Akira Kurosawa, who is arguably Japan's greatest film director, released a film in 1990 called Dreams which presented eight short vignettes of Kurosawa's actual dreams. One of the segments is called Mount Fuji in Red and portrays the explosion of six nuclear reactors in Japan. It's the film's second nightmare sequence, and it shows a large nuclear power plant near Mount Fuji that has begun to melt down, painting the sky a horrendous red and sending millions of Japanese citizens desperately fleeing into the ocean. Not that far away from the truth. Film critic Roger Ebert died last week after an extended battle with cancer. And he posted on his blog in 2002 his belief that his cancer came from radiation exposure when he was a child. He wrote, I had radiation for an ear infection in the 50s. At that time, it was still common to treat acne, earaches, and other head and neck problems with high levels of radiation we now know are dangerous. As a result, There's a little epidemic of people in my age group who are developing this type of problem. 
he continued with the cautionary note, If there's anyone reading this who remembers having a radioactive gun aimed at them when they were a child, they might ask their doctors to look at the levels of thyroid-stimulating hormone, TSH, in their blood tests. Thank you, Roger. Thumbs up on the warning. And finally, this one, which was a bit of a heartbreaker. A kindergartner named Savannah Yuri has presented drawings, a poster setup, and an exclusively iPod shot and edited video that all feature the nuclear topic. The fact that deadly and highly carcinogenic plutonium and cesium isotopes were spewed and continue to be spewed into the Pacific Ocean to this very day from the world's first full-blown triple nuclear core melt-through. The project additionally featured and focused on the fact that this deadly radiation is now contained within the bodies of tuna and other edible fish in the Great Pacific and beyond. To quote Savannah from the video, Now tuna fish in California have cesium. Yuck! What I found fascinating about the report on this is that the reporter, who was with EnviroNews.tv, said... We were surprised and encouraged to learn that Miss Savannah was not the only kindergartner who was already well aware of the planetary woes unleashed by what has been deemed by many experts to be the worst environmental disaster in human history. One little Japanese-American boy knew full well about the tragic troubles visited on the coast of Japan, and another little boy gave us a full-blown dissertation on the nest-fouling quandary of nuclear waste. These are our kids. This is their future. It breaks my heart. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 9, 2013. Material for this week's show came from enenews.com, healthline.com, energyintel.com, Friends of the Earth, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission itself from the belly of the beast, Global Security Newswire, WQAD-TV, World Nuclear News, Orange County Register, Arnie Gunderson and Fairwinds.com, Yori Mochizuki and Fukushima Diary, The New York Times, The Asahi Shimbun, Kyoto News, Examiner.com, DailyCause.com, God, I'm getting tired of this, EnviroNews.tv, Beyond Nuclear, Ecological Options Network, and the ever-popular, ever-vigilant Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community, and the Coalition Against Nukes. We'll be going out on audio from Cindy Folker's presentation at Dr. Caldecott's symposium. The PowerPoint is priceless. So check out the link on the Nuclear Hot Seat website blog page and catch the visuals along with the audio. I want to remind you that Nuclear Hot Seat is a completely volunteer project. Yeah, I'm nuts. There are ongoing expenses, so if you like what you hear, you can donate by going to the homepage at NuclearHotSeat.com. Just scroll down a bit and hit the Donate button. I could also use volunteer help on social media and website creation and maintenance. So if you have those skills and want to help, let me know. Oh, and I am looking for several someones who would like to add visuals to each week's podcast so I can post them on YouTube to spread the word further. Or even better, you can post them on YouTube for me. So if you'd like to unleash your inner Tim Burton, let me know and we'll give it a go. You can find all our 95 podcasts posted on NuclearHotSeat.com forward slash blog. And the entire library is available on iTunes Podcasts. So here's a thought. Send a link to this podcast to your personal list, friends, and family. Maybe people who aren't quite hip to the issues. We are the activist voice on nuclear issues, so use us as the resource we are. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, which is the heart of the art of communicating. And I need to remind you that, hey, 
You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. We've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, don't go back to sleep. Here's Cindy Fokers from Dr. Helen Caldecott's symposium talking about the food issue that concerns us all. Just how contaminated is our food? I got this question a lot of times after Fukushima exploded, and I'm still getting it, and it's frustrating because it doesn't have a good answer. We know that radiation from Fukushima did reach the U.S. directly. Iodine-131, cesium-137, and 134 are evidence of this. Other radioisotopes could have reached us as well, but they're harder to detect. This doesn't make them less important, but my talk will focus on cesium for a number of reasons, which will become clear. What do I, do I need to, a little closer this way, down, how's that, better, okay, great. So what needs to be assessed from this point forward is how cesium cycles and becomes concentrated or biomagnified in the environment over the long term and where it might enter our food supply as a result. Now, remember, our food can come not just from what is grown in the U.S., but what is harvested from the Pacific Ocean and imported from other countries, including Japan. So what are the most important points for understanding radiation in this food monitoring context? Radiation is expelled from the nucleus of an atom and is represented by a unit called a becquerel. One becquerel is equal to one atomic disintegration per second, and different radionuclides give off different kinds of radiation. Different types of radiation are blocked by different substances, depending on the density of the substance and the quality of the radiation itself. And certain types of radiation that would be less damaging outside our bodies can become much more damaging if taken internally, inhaled or ingested, since there's nothing inside our cells like a piece of paper or plexiglass to block this radioactive energy. In this case, each one of these disintegrations or hits, represented by a becquerel, may cause damage and disease. Also, because some radiation is more easily blocked, like alpha and beta particle radiation, it can be challenging to measure certain radionuclides inside food if this is the only type of radiation that they emit. In general, Gamma radiation is easier to measure because it travels through most material more easily, like the flesh of an apple or the flesh of a fish. This makes gamma the obvious choice for testing because you don't need to do anything extra to the food to prepare it, like cut an apple or pulp the apple. The radionuclide cesium-137 emits a gamma ray, so it is the radionuclide most often measured. But even if you don't find that cesium gamma, it doesn't mean the food doesn't contain other radionuclides that are of concern, like strontium-90, plutonium-239. So obviously measuring food for just gamma has serious limitations, but it would be a reasonable start in any food testing program. Fukushima isn't the only source of cesium contamination. We have been being exposed to man-made radiation for generations from a number of different sources. So atomic bomb blasts worldwide, 954 petabecquerels. I will use quadrillion. And to give you an illustration of what a quadrillion is, if you have a quadrillion pennies on top of each other, they would reach the sun and back five times over. This is a big number. 
Every nuclear power reactor releases radionuclides to water and air as part of their operating plan. It doesn't take an accident to release this material, although we know they've had plenty of those as well. Total release amount for cesium-134 and 137 is currently unavailable and would have to be calculated for the U.S. nuclear... power reactor fleet. It would also be based on questionable affluent release data that is most often collected by industry, not independent parties. Then there's Chernobyl. 85 quadrillion becquerels of cesium-137. This number has a margin of plus or minus 26 petabecquerels.